Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Welcome to our time of study in God's Word. This is study number 56 through this series through the book of Revelation. And the title of our study today is The River of the Water of Life. And today we're going to look at Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Would you please join me now in prayer? Lord, we uh, thank you for this great text before us today and how it shows forth the glory of God From the throne of God in the eternal city, the city of God, the new Jerusalem. So I pray, Lord, today as we consider this text that you would fill our hearts and our minds with heaven. That we would come away from this study, Lord, more more equipped, understanding that eternal city, the new Jerusalem. And that as a result, Lord, our hearts and our minds will be instructed and trained in the truth that is ours. That is ours. While we eagerly look forward to that day of your return, we also look forward to to being in the new Jerusalem. So Lord, may our hearts be encouraged and instructed about that day, and may you use this sermon to help us to boldly declare the glory of God in the person and work of Jesus. In your precious name, Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it to Revelation 22. We're on on the last chapter in the last book of the Bible. Praise the Lord, you know. We're uh, we're about four more studies, have about four more studies, four more studies after this. I'm really excited uh, to end this book with five studies, including today's. So look with me at Revelation 22 and the first five verses. Revelation 22, 1 through 5 says this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the land through the middle of the street and of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruits yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or the sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Praise God for that. You know, readers are always satisfied when the author of a great and intricate book ties loose plot strands together at the end. For instance, in Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities, we wonder at the source of Madame Defarge's malice for Charles Darnay to learn at the end that her peasant family was terribly victimized by Darnay's ancestors. How will Darnay escape his dreadful family legacy, and how will Sidney Carton redeem his heretofore wasted life. 
The answer is found as Carton goes to death, doing something far, far better than I have ever done, and seeking a far, far better rest than I have ever known. Even more satisfying than the conclusion of Dickens' great novel is the final chapter of the Bible. With a story begun and the, the dawn of creation comes to perfect fulfillment in the eternal glory. Revelation 22, 1-5 provides the last images and the final vision of salvation in the entirety of Scripture. Here we find images that we recognize from the Garden of Eden, including the river or the water of life and the, and the tree of life. Revelation 22, 1-2 speaks of both ideas. As a redeemed people of God are restored to these blessings, we find that God's original purpose in creation has not been thwarted a single iota by the rebellion of Satan and the scourges of sin. In the temple city of Revelation's a final vision, God's people do not go back to the garden, but they go forward to what God intended when the first paradise was born at the dawn of time. Simon Kissmacher writes that John paints a picture of a renewed paradise to complete the biblical account of human history. At the very end, as in the beginning, the triune God reigns triumphantly in a paradise inhabited by his faithful, adoring, image-bearing people. G.K. Beale comments that this ending to the Bible story confirms that humanity's original purpose in the first garden sanctuary was to expand the outward and spread the light of God's presence throughout the world. Every Christian who has taken up the missionary calling to spread the gospel message of Christ by the obedience of God's word is sought to advance Christ's kingdom, can rejoice to see that these labors were not in vain. By Christ's redeeming victory, the pro prophetic vision will be fulfilled in Isaiah 11, verse 9, which says, The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Previously, John looked on the eternal city and on the people living there. And now he concludes with the sources of that life and the blesses the garden city, the new Jerusalem, in Revelation 22, verse 1, it says, Then the angel showed me the rivers of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, there are many biblical antecedents to this vision, but two stand out. The first was a river that flowed out of Eden to water the garden in Genesis 2.10, and the second was a river that was issuing from below the threshold of the temple in Ezekiel's vision of God's end-time temple in Ezekiel 47, verse 1. Whereas the first river flowed out of Eden, and Ezekiel's river issued from the eastern temple door, the rivers of the New Jerusalem, the river of the New Jerusalem, flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb, Revelation 22, 1 says. The point that John wants to make here is the sovereign reign of God in history is the source of the life and the refreshment that flows to his people in eternity. And since it is the throne not only of God, but also of the Lamb, we see that grace flows from the sovereign will of the Father by means of the saving death of the Son. Salvation's blessings are reserved for those who have maintained their faith in the Lamb's atoning work and their testimony to His redemptive work. Moreover, the salvation depicted by this bright crystal stream consisted of fellowship in the life that comes from God. This was Jesus' message to the woman by the well when he offered her living water in John 4.10. And Jesus said to her in John 4.14, The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus was saying that by faith we may drink now of the spiritual life depicted in the river flowing through the new Jerusalem. And later in John's gospel, he said 
In John 10, 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And when Jesus once offered rivers of living water to all who come to him in John 7, 37 through 38, John explained that he was speaking about the spirit whom Christ would send when he was glorified in John 7, 39. Now here in Revelation, John provides details regarding the river of life. He says that its water is bright as crystal, depicting the purity of life that God gives and the cleansing effect of the grace that we receive by faith in him. And John adds that the river flows through the middle of the street of the city in Revelation 22.2. And earlier we saw that a, that a street of pure gold transparent as glass in Revelation 21.21. 21. And so the river flows either atop or beside the main thoroughfare, showing that the divine light streams in the heart of the eternal dwelling place of the people of God. Here's fulfilled the promise of Revelation 17, or excuse me, the promise of Revelation 7, 17, which says the, lion, the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water. Ezekiel's temple vision showed that the stream beginning at the temple doors is a trickle and then growing ankle deep, then rising waist deep and finally getting so deep that it could not be crossed in Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12. This depicted the increasing power of the grace of God as it advanced in redemptive history. And as it flowed to the east, Ezekiel saw the brackish water becoming fresh, trees lining its banks, and fish swarming with life. Finally, it reached the Dead Sea, purifying its salt water and cleansing it to produce life. You see, Ezekiel said that on its banks there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail, but but they will bear fresh fruit every month. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing, Ezekiel 47, 12 says. And now John picks up this language to show that Ezekiel was foreseeing not a future physical blessing for the physical land of Israel, but rather the vitality of life that God has in store for his people in the New Jerusalem. Verse 2 of Revelation 22 says, On either side of the river, the tree of life with its Twelve kinds of fruits. Now, the Genesis account of the garden highlighted not only the river flowing out of Eden, but also the tree of life in the midst of the garden, which Genesis 2.9 talks about, which conveyed eternal life to those who eat from it. And now John sees this tree of life growing on both sides of the river. Most scholars think that this image depicts not a single great tree, but a groves of trees that give life, lining the banks of river. The 19th century scholar, James Hamilton, not, not the one that we have quoted often, this is a different James Hamilton, he sees an analogy between the tree of life and the incarnation of Jesus Christ, who brings God's presence to Christians, because he says it has pleased the Father that in the incarnate Son it should dwell all the supplies of pardon, righteousness, strength, and wisdom, which sinners need all the life that we lack, so Jesus is the tree of life. And it's noteworthy as well that the word tree was used in the apostles' preaching for the cross of Christ. Peter connected Christ's death to this scene. He says in 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on, that, on the tree, that he might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. The redemptive source of eternal life is none other than the repetitory sacrifice of the Lamb of God. Noting how the tree lines both banks of the water of life, with branches bending low to the, to the hands of those who seek him. 
James Hamilton of the 19th century writes that all the blessings of salvation, all the sure mercies purchased by Christ's death, and all, all the sacred joys resident in Christ's person are made as accessible as God's free gift. You see, as the gospel of Christ's death and salvation is preached today, this very life is freely made available to all who believe and all to, who reach out in faith in Jesus Christ. And Ezekiel saw this in Ezekiel 47 verse 12. He saw trees whose fruit will be for food, he says. And John notes their fulfillment in the New Jerusalem in verse 2 of chapter 22, which says the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the fact that 12 kinds of fruit are yielded each month, it indicates both the variety of blessings and their availability. You see, there is an abundant provision of spiritual life and grace to meet every imaginable need. As Adam and Eve walked in the garden in the cool of day, enjoying the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden, Genesis 3.8, so will the vast multitude of God's redeemed people live in the blessing of the grove of the divine life forever. According to Jeremiah, the principle depicted in this vision extends back to our present world. Jeremiah warned that those who trust in worldly strength, turning away from the Lord, become like a shrub in the desert, shriveling up in an uninhabited salt land, in Jeremiah 17, verse 6. In contrast, he says that the one who trusts in the Lord is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green. It is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit, Jeremiah 17, 7-8 says. This reality was experienced by Art and Wilda Matthews, the last missionaries to escape China after the communist takeover. They lived with their family for months in a single room with, with only a stool for furniture. All contact with outside friends and financial support were cut off. With only a small stove, they, they shivered. Their food reduced to a daily meal of rice cooked over manure that art gathered in the streets. By this means, the Chinese sought to wither up the Christian's faith, but the opposite happened. Throughout the trial, they trusted God. They spoke to him in prayer and strengthened themselves by the word. After they escaped, they told their story, the title of which was drawn from Jeremiah 17, 7 through 8, Green Leaf in Drought Time. Psalm 46, 4 says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, saying David of the gospel. Blessed is the man, he wrote, whose delight is in the law of the Lord. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers, Psalm 1, 2 through 3 says. Now Ezekiel's vision spoke of trees with leaves for healing in Ezekiel 47, 2. And now John notes that the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations in Revelation 22, 2. And since there are no ills to heal, in, in, the, in the city of the redeemed, the wounds that are healed come from life in this world. This is a wonderful idea. Now think how, of how even the strongest Christian depart from this life, whether tragically during their early years or feebly in the old age, with the scars of battle and the grief of our own character failings. Though we depart from this life battered and, and bowed down, we will receive in the life to come the complete restoration of both body and soul. In Psalm 23, 5, David proclaims that you anoint my head with oil. Ancient trial was arrived at an inn covered with dust, 
and their skin cracked by the hot sun. A friendly host would greet them with soothing oil. You see, our Savior is going to do more than this in heaven, not only anointing our souls with the oil of the Spirit, but healing us with the leaves of his, from that come from his tree of life. And moreover, every source of strife between tribes and nations will be alleviated in this new Jerusalem. The nationalism, the racism, the acrimony, the bitterness, the long history of warfare will be healed. Here is regained the paradise that man lost through sin, not only at, at a personal level, but at a corporate level. Only through the death of Christ, for healing and forgiveness, does man find its cherished utopia that he is so after today. Paul says this in Ephesians 2.14, He himself is our peace. In the eternal city, the work of Christ is ever present in its blessed effects. Romans 5.1 says this, having, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God and peace in our relationship because of the peace of God with others. Theologians speak of Christ's redeeming work as both accomplished and applied. Revelation 22, 1-2 shows the ultimate accomplishment of salvation by the sovereign will of the Father and the atoning death of the Son culminating in the outflowing provision of eternal life. And the final three verses depict the eternal application of redemption for those who come to faith in Christ. For them, the curse of sin will give way to the blessing of grace. Eternity will be spent basking in the knowledge and service of God. And those joined to Christ will reign with him forever and ever. You see, when Adam and Eve first sinned against God, they fell under the curse of his just wrath. And as a result, they were cast out of the garden and barred from the tree of life, Genesis 3, 22-24 tells us. No longer would they enjoy personal fellowship with God and serve as his people. The creation itself now has struggled against them, making life frustrating and hard. The significance of sin can be, can be seen. Now the Bible has 1,189 chapters, all but four of which take place under the curse of sin. The first two chapters depict life before the entrance of sin, and the final two chapters show life after sin has been fully conquered by Christ. And the intervening 1,185 chapters tell the story of how God redeemed his people from sin through the ministry of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when John says in verse 3, No longer will there be anything accursed, he declares the entry of sin has been remedied in reverse. Now believers will enjoy the bounty of the grace of God, which is richer in Christ than the joys of the original garden. We live now in an age when sin has not yet been removed. But by confessing our sins and bringing them to the cross for forgiveness, we escape the curse of sin and enter into the life of the children of God. The penalty paid by Jesus has restored us to God, and one day soon its effects will be cosmological cosmologically removed for life in the new jerusalem galatians 3 13 says christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree and the chief bane of adam and eve's fall into sin was their alienation from the presence of god and the chief blessing of the eternal glory is the return of god's presence to his redeemed people and so john says this in verse 3 the throne of god and of the lamb will be in it God's throne dominates the vision of Revelation. At first, John was permitted to peer into heaven to see the vision of God's throne in Revelation 4.2. And now at the end of history, he sees the throne of God and of the Lamb in the very midst of his people. Remember, I've said 
throughout chapter 21 that we're going to see the Lord Jesus, the head of this city. That's what we're seeing now. This statement shows that the redemption is a restoration to the presence and the blessing of God as well as to God's kingly rule. The calling for God's throne is to reign in your life through obedience to his word, and it's a sign of your return to his favor. It is those under a curse who are left to wander in the blasted lands east of Eden, free to govern their own lives and folly and sin. See, those who are placed on the authority of God's word are no longer cursed by sin, but blessed by the grace of God. And you see that, that the curse of sin was removed by the sovereign will of God and the Lamb's atoning work. His blessing is sustained by the enthroned presence of God in his truth and grace. And note further that, that the people redeemed from the curse and blessed by God's presence are his servants who will worship him, verse 3. The Greek word used here is latreo. It can mean both serve and worship. Of course, the two together are to go together in the eternal city. Just as Adam was called to work and to keep the original garden in Genesis 2.15, making it fruitful and multiply, uh, Genesis 1.28 says, so also will the redeemed pick up the work of spreading God's glory through the universe for all eternity. Here is the answer to those who worry that eternity will be a never-ending version of boring worship services that they may have endured on earth. Just as the presence of God and his word makes worship enlivening now, so will his presence make our eternal services an exercise in the glory of God. And the Jerusalem will be like the priest of Israel who marveled to enter the temple and to serve in the midst of such precious things. We will share with Christ in the care and the cultivation of the glorious cosmos, filling our God-given desire to work for the things of true value and glory. We will be filled with rapture and bowing before the living God and singing with angel choirs of the glory and the grace of God. Philip Hughes writes, clothed in robes of holiness that have been washed and made white in the blood of the Lamb. They are before the throne of God and serve him ceaselessly, ceaselessly in his temple. Now, our challenge today is to realize that through faith in Christ, we are clothed in this very same manner before God. And our sincere worship and our sincere witness constitutes a living sacrifice that is precious to him even now, Romans 12.1 says. Not only do we enter into the blessing of God, but we will spend eternity growing in our knowledge of him. Revelation 22.4 says they will see his face. Richard Bachman explains that the face expresses who a person is. And so to see God's face will be to know who God is in his personal being. This will be the heart of humanity's eternal joy in their eternal worship of God. And here is a blessing denied to the greatest of God's servant during this present age. Moses pleaded to see the face of God, and God answered in Exodus thirty-three twenty, You cannot see my face, for a man shall not see me and live. Moses was instead placed in a cleft of the rock to see the back of God's glory. And Jesus explained that, that man may not see God's face because of sin. But he said in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In this life, none qualify for this vision, though we are justified by faith in Christ. And yet, in the age to come, we will be holy like him, and thus, though, yet in the age to come, we will be holy like him, and thus we will see his face. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what will be has not yet appeared 
but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And knowing this, he added, is an incentive to our present pursuit of holiness. In 1 John 3, 3, it says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. In this life, you'll probably never meet a famous general, a head of state, or even a popular movie star. But you see, if you belong to Christ, your faith in him, you will see God's face. In fact, indeed, the mark of a mature believer in Christ is an increasing desire to see God's glory in heaven and to be closer to him now. I want to see his glory, advanced believers will cry. They seek a privilege that only the high priest enjoyed in the Old Testament when he entered the Holy of Holies once a year and beheld the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, the temple context of John's vision shows that the high priest's privilege would one way one day belong to all the people of God when they're restored in the resurrection. We anticipate and prepare now for this unimaginable delight by coming to know God better through his word. It's not surprising that for people who are destined to see the face of God, the most wholesome and enriching of all activities is the study of God and the teaching of the word of God. And in addition to seeing God's face, believers will have his name written on their foreheads, Revelation 22.4 says. Whereas the mark of the beast signified loyalty to the tyrannical Antichrist, here the mark of God signifies the loyalty of those who belong to him. In an earlier vision, the sealing of God's name on his people demonstrates and indicated his care for their souls in Revelation 7.3, in contrast to the unbelieving world marked with the sign of the beast. And moreover, the name of God stands for his character, which is reflected in the holiness of the glorified saints. God's mark indicates his ownership, his covenant union, his acceptance of all those who bear his name in eternity. None who will bear his name will ever be forgotten. In one of his earlier letters, Jesus promised to the Philadelphians, the one who conquers, I will write on him the name of my God and my own new name, Revelation 3.12 says. Meredith Klein says, to say that overcomers in the new Jerusalem bear the name of Christ in their forehead is to say that they reflect the glory of Christ, which is to say that they bear the image of the glorified Christ. Christians read comments like this and they marvel at what they think is really not possible for their lives. Is it? feasible that you will bear the image of the glorified Christ. Now the New Testament says that through union with Christ in faith, as the Holy Spirit works in us by God's word and by our prayers, we will increasingly display God's glory. Second Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You see, we increasingly bear the image of the glory of Christ in a sanctified character through deeds of service and biblically faithful worship and in loving gospel witness as we grow spiritually in a life committed to knowing and glorifying God. As a Christian, you bear the name of Christ now. Why should you not consecrate yourself to him, asking Christ to display his glory in and through you by the power of his Holy Spirit? John repeats in Revelation 22.5 his earlier statement that night will be no more. They, they need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. Everything belonging to the old order is going to have gone, including both nighttime with its dangers and temptations to the celestial light needed for daytime. And so C.S. Lewis called this present life the Shadowlands, meaning that here is the world of shadows and the pale reflections of what will be possible in the light of God. In the New Jerusalem, God's presence will always be their light. 
And so Simon Kissmacher writes, In the renewed world, God's people will never need rest. They'll never need sleep. They will have boundless energy to serve God and praise Him forever and ever. In fact, the very last statement of the final vision of the salvation provided in Revelation is significant. John says this in verse 5, And they will reign forever and ever. And thus at the end is fulfilled God's first calling for His people. God said in Genesis 1.26, Let's make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. We need to understand that sin made us slave, but God intends by his grace to make us kings. Bruce Milne says that humanity will rise and get, raise their heads and stand tall in God's presence in his world. The wretched will ascend the throne. The rebel will reign. The condemned will be crowned. You see, through union with Christ and faith, you are destined to reign with him in the land of glory. Of the one who conquers, he says in Revelation 3.21, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, and as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. This being true, why should sin reign over you now, Romans 6.12 says? Why should you succumb to anxiety, even in the midst of great trials, when God has sent his son to die for your sins, and has promised that you will reign with him forever? You see, we need to remember that John wrote the book of Revelation to churches facing terrible, horrible persecution for their faith and their testimony to Christ. So why should you fear to speak boldly these truths of God's word and especially the gospel offer of salvation? In fact, John said that Christ's faithful servants overcome evil now by the word of their testimony to the blood of Christ in Revelation 12.1. Of them, God's word promised that the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever, Daniel 7.18 says. The fantasy visions of C.S. Lewis excel in providing a foretaste of the glories depicted in Revelation. At the very end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Lewis provides a vivid scene of the crowning of the servants of Aslan, the lion figure of Christ. Peter, the hero who has wielded the sharp sharp sword, was crowned with the name Magnificence. Lucy the healer was crowned as the gentle. Susan with her deadly bow was named Queen Susan the Valiant. Even Edom, who portrayed his friends and disgraced himself in sin, was crowned. His child, heralding the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, was King Edmund the Just. Today there is a crown for you too, together with a portion of the glory of Christ for you to display in the world. If you come to Jesus for salvation and yield yourself to his reign in this life, then the final words of John's vision will come true for you. The Lord will be your light and you will reign with him forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truths that we've considered today. That it's not because of ourselves that we reign, it's because of you. It's because of your finished and sufficient work on our behalf and our place and for our sin through your death and resurrection, Lord, that, that we are yours and we belong to you. And we have this hope, this, this confidence, this anchor for our, for our souls. We are indwelt by your spirits. We are empowered for the mission of God to, to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples all the glory of Christ. Lord, I just pray today that, that our hearts would be encouraged, 
as we've considered this text before us today, that there is one who is at the head of the eternal city, the city of God. So Lord, we thank you that even there that we see your sovereign reign and power, you are its head, the head of the eternal city, the Lord Jesus. And there we will worship you and honor you and glorify you. So we lift up our hearts even now to you. We lay our petitions before you. And we thank you, Lord, that we that you hear us through Christ, that we can come to a throne of grace. And even on this final day, Lord, we will with you forever worship you, extol you, honor you, glorify you, lift up the name of the Lord, and live only for your honor and glory. May that be our aim even now today. Forgive us where we where we do where we don't honor you. We confess our need of you, Lord. Please forgive us and wash us anew because of the finished and sufficient work of Christ alone. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.